This video is an installment of our Master Teacher Series, in which we will be discussing case reflections with experts from around the globe. There will be no discussion questions during this video. However, if you would like to ask a question or leave a comment, please feel free to do so at any time. Thank you and we hope you enjoy this video. This recording is intended to be used as an educational resource for healthcare providers. It is in no way a substitute for the independent decision making and judgment of a qualified healthcare professional. It should not be used to make a diagnosis or to overrule the advice of a qualified healthcare provider, nor should it be used to provide advice for emergency medical treatment. Welcome to World Chair Practice Forum. I'm Dr. Jeff Burns, Chief of Critical Care at Boston Children's Hospital and Harvard Medical School. We're very pleased to have with us today Dr. Warwick Butt. Dr. Butt is the Director of the Intensive Care Service at the Royal Children's Hospital and also the ICU lead at the Murdoch Children's Research Institute in Melbourne. He's also the Associate Professor in the Department of Pediatrics at the University of Melbourne in Melbourne, Australia. Warwick, welcome. Thanks, Jeff. It's a pleasure to be here today. So, Warwick, um, you're known uh, by colleagues around the world as being um, really the consummate clinician. You've uh, trained people who are now working in intensive care units throughout um, Canada, North America, um, and Australia. And um, I know in working with them, uh, they've commented often and frequently about um, your uh, superior clinical skills. And the reason that I asked you, invited you as visiting professor here at Harvard is um, I wanted to really tap your decades of experience on how you approach taking care of a critically ill child. Um, you know, it's easy to talk about various disease processes and uh, the latest guidelines and implementing evidence. But one of the things that we don't talk about a lot is really tapping an expert like you and saying, you walk up to the bed What's the framework that you apply in taking care of this child? How do you do it? So could you speak to us uh, maybe some overarching principles to help orient us on this, and then perhaps we can discuss a few cases. What's your approach to taking care of critically ill children? Well, I think when we look at children in the intensive care, uh, as pediatricians or intensivists, we'd agree that prevention is better than cure, and early treatment is better than late treatment. But most of the children we treat are expected to do well. I want to talk about those at high risk of a poor outcome or death. And I guess my number one overarching principle is that you have to do something and reassess it, and you have to do it now. Watchful expectancy and masterful inactivity is not good for these high-risk patients. So with that in mind, um, I think there's a, a number of uh, things that I do. And the first is, try and establish the diagnosis, define the severity of disease, and actually understand the pathophysiology of what's happening. And you can't really look after a child unless you understand what's going on. The second key point would be to forward plan the disease and the treatment options. In particular, I think you can be proactive, not reactive. So we can be ahead of the game. Number three, we can't just treat now, we have to plan the next 12 or 24 hours, but in many of the things we do for these really sick children, we have to look at the longer term uh, options as well. 
Number four, when we're treating these critically ill children, we have to make priorities about which organ system is the most important at this moment. We need to set clear physiological goals that let us meet the uh, most pressing organ priorities of the moment. And finally, I'd like to treat every child as my own. I try my best. I want people to try harder if the patient gets sicker. And then I think we need to have honest and direct conversations with the families. Warwick, those are uh, wonderful overarching principles. Now, I wonder if we could um, go through a specific case or two and, um, and maybe draw you out further on how you're thinking about it and how you're approaching it. Uh, a common uh, uh, concern for uh, clinicians around the world is caring for a child who's got pneumonia. Take us through a case uh, with a child with pneumonia. Yeah, thanks, Jeff. So if we take a nine-month-old who's been admitted to ICU and is intubated and receiving conventional mechanical ventilation for hypoxemia, and then 12 hours after being admitted, he gets hypotensive. People give some crystalloid starter norepinephrine infusion. And we're now called to see this patient because the hypotension has progressed, maybe a systolic of 50. And we're told when we get there to see the patient that the last blood gas had a pH of 7.33, a CO2 of 40, and an O2 of 80. So in other words, we think we're ventilating okay. We're our uh, oxygen levels are okay, and yet the patient is hypotensive. So how should we approach this problem? And so I think there are three key elements to the problem. We clearly need to get an urgent X-ray. Uh, we need to consider getting a repeat blood gas because 30 minutes ago is ancient history in a rapidly deteriorating patient. And with that blood gas, we might want to also know the lactate and a central vein, and at the same time do a central venous saturation. Could I ask you a question about central venous saturation? As you know, um, it's a somewhat a widely discussed uh, subject as to the optimal sampling uh, point. Um, in your view, is a catheter positioned at the SVC-RA junction, is that the optimal place for a central venous sat? Um, obviously, the pulmonary artery would be the optimal place, but um, in most instances, uh, that's uh, not a device we use anymore. So where is the best place to sample a central venous saturation? Or many people would phrase it as a mixed venous saturation. So you're right. A mixed venous saturation only exists in the pulmonary artery. And having uh, the tip of the catheter either at the RA-IVC junction or RA-SVC junction would be nice. The truth is, I don't care. As long as it's in one spot, and that's the number I'm going to use over time, I'm not that concerned about the individual value, but rather the trend over time. So if a central venous sat was under 40, assuming no intracardiac shunt, that's a bad number. As you well know, and the IVC is a little higher than the SVC numbers, but 40 uh, either, either end would be horrible and needs attention immediately. But I never do an SVO2 without a lactate because if the SVO2 is low and the lactate is normal, you have a moment to pause to think about other things, whereas if the lactate's starting to rise, there's no time, you need to act now. On the other hand, if the SVO2 is high, uh, and particularly if the lactate's rising, that would make me very concerned about imminent metabolic failure. 
and that's where I'd be starting to get urgent uh, uh, echocardiogram, particularly if the lactate was rising. So I think it's not good enough to do just an SVO2. You need an SVO2 and a lactate, and the combination will tell you how severe it is and whether the child's compensating or whether the child's failing to compensate and needs urgent treatment. So, uh, or let's keep moving through the case. And I think um, what I'm wondering right now is, are you relying on your exam only um, uh, to assess cardiopulmonary function, um, or are you going to a diagnostic modality? Um, and I suspect it's a little bit of both. And if, if you are gonna go to a diagnostic mod modality, is it only if your exam is equivocal and you're not certain? Or do you feel it's a necessary adjunct? And so if so, what are the diagnostic modalities in what order in this context of this patient with uh, pneumonia, intubated, uh, arterial blood gas that's not too concerning but is now hypotensive? So take us through this moment. Well, clinical examination obviously is very important, but uh, I think in this situation, I'd be very keen to have a, an urgent chest X-ray and whilst that was being done, also get an echocardiogram. So the X-ray would be incredibly helpful uh, as it would define further events. So the X-ray might show just a focal consolidation and hyperinflation of the lung, in which case hypovolemia would quickly come to mind. Um, it might show a pneumothorax, which can be treated immediately. Um, it might show a pleural effusion, which would start to make you think about uh, severe streptococcal pneumonia. The main cultures may not have come back. Um, and it may show just profound uh, lung injury, generalised lung injury. So all of those will have very different treatments. And without knowing which one you're dealing with, you can't get it right. And um, on the um, echo... Uh cardiogram, are you looking for specifically uh, some assessment of shortening fraction or ejection fraction, or, or are you not looking for that kind of summative uh, assessment, but rather you want to get a, a qualitative assessment of ventricular function, or both? What do you why do you want that echo? Well, I want to look at it myself uh, from a global point of view. So if the function is normal, that tells me that the hypotension is due to a vascular phenomenon. Maybe it's uh, hypovolemia, or it could be the inter cardiopulmonary interaction. If, if the uh, echo shows um, hyperdynamic circulation and profound hypovolemia, then the treatment's going to be different than if it shows isolated left ventricular dysfunction, in which case epinephrine uh, and perhaps milrinone would, would quickly come into play. On the other hand, if it showed right ventricular dysfunction with a, a pu clearly pulmonary hypertension, well, then the treatment, again, is slightly different. You may use an inotrope, but you may also want to use nitric oxide or, or consider other therapies. And finally, we mustn't forget that in infection, you can always get a pericardial effusion and if the echo showed that, that would require drainage. So, uh, Warwick, uh, back to our case. Um, as you well know, uh, the echo can guide 
uh, your understanding of the physiology based on the assessment of systolic function, but of course it tells nothing uh, about diastolic dysfunction, certainly not in the pediatric age group. And you're sitting there with this patient who's been labeled having pneumonia, is intubated, and has you know, bilateral infiltrates on this chest x-ray. When do you start asking yourself, could this be diastolic dysfunction? And perhaps we don't have the diagnosis correct. Perhaps this is not infectious. Perhaps this is left atrial hypertension. When does that enter your mind, and how do you sort it through? Because the echo is not going to guide you any, any further on assessing diastolic dysfunction. So firstly, it will tell me systolic function, which will be helpful. But more importantly, it will tell me the size of the atria. And in my experience, if you have significant diastolic dysfunction, you will have an enlarged atrium. So if the atria is not enlarged, it argues that even if there is a bit of diastolic dysfunction, it won't be that severe to cause profound hypotension. So in the first instance, while we're resuscitating the child, we may start norepinephrine to control the blood pressure because we have to treat it. But then while we're getting... Uh, further uh, information will be changing our treatment in line with what we find. So let's talk about your choice of vasoactive agents. Um, uh, you and I have been around practicing long enough to see the uh, rise and fall and rise again of the use of norepinephrine in uh, critically ill children. Um, can you take us tell tell us why uh, you prefer that? And, and in Boston, we would be doing the same thing. But uh, why are you not using dopamine in this patient, and, or why not epinephrine? Why are you choosing uh, norepinephrine in this nine-month-old child with uh, pneumonia and hypotension? Well, in the first instance, you're either treating a vascular phenomenon, so vasodilation causing hypotension or relative hypovolemia. As you well know, we try to limit the amount of fluid we're going to give. So if there's vasodilation, norepinephrine is a good start. I would only use it to a, a dose of perhaps 0.1 or 0.15 mics per kilo per minute and then would add in a second line of vasoconstrictor like vasopressin. But the norepinephrine is rapidly and easily titratable. I would be trying to avoid a lot of uh, extra fluid in this situation. But by now, half an hour has gone by and I, we have access to terrific cardiology fellows and I've got my echo. And if there's systolic failure, I'll be weaning the norepinephrine a bit and adding in epinephrine, God's own inotrope. So I would always prefer epinephrine in this situation uh, to dopamine or dobutamine uh, to start with. If there was severe pulmonary hypertension and RV dysfunction, I would still use epinephrine, but then would fairly quickly add in milrinone and hopefully uh, some other pulmonary vasodilator like uh, nitric oxide, for example. But I would have also had by now a central line inserted. So I'd be happy to use the norepinephrine and epinephrine in dilute concentrations peripherally while we establish central venous access. Of course, knowing the central venous pressure would be helpful. Whilst it's not a true reflection of volume status, it will, if it's very low or very high, it will be helpful. And what are you targeting um, in, uh, and, and, and 
and what's your target uh, time uh, frame? Are you uh, targeting um, an improvement in heart rate and blood pressure in 20 minutes? Are you targeting an improvement in lactate in an hour? What are the typical targets that you're using to uh, advance your resuscitation efforts? Well, I think they're multiple. I think uh, SVO2 and lactate are absolutely paramount. You want to try and get the lactate down as quickly as possible because that means you're providing adequate oxygen delivery to meet metabolic demand. Are you going to be sampling it every 30 minutes to assess uh, progress? Yes, I would be 30 minutes, particularly if it was high. So if it was anything above four, I want it coming down. Now, of course, we need to remember in this case, it's unlikely we've got dead gut or other causes of hyperlactatemia, and people worry about epinephrine-inducing hyperlactatemia. And that's a concern at very high dose, but not at uh, our normal starting doses of 0.05. I would also then be targeting blood pressure, of course, and uh, other clinical signs of adequacy of perfusion. So the child's on a ventilator and presumably getting some form of uh, sedation and analgesia, so conscious state won't be all that helpful, Uh, and capillary refill times uh, are of interest, but if the lactate's rising, we need to focus on getting that down as the primary goal. Uh, So let's progress with the case here. Uh, Patient's still hypotensive, despite the addition of now uh, epinephrine. Um, You've given crystalloid, but you're trying to be judicious about that in the setting of the lung injury. Uh, uh, Lactate's still rising, uh, mixed venous is falling. What are you thinking? What are you adding next? So it's a difficult situation because if you add a further inotrope, it's not, there's no guarantee that that will improve, but I'll have the echo. And if the systolic function is poor and the heart is dilating, we're left in really with a choice of two options. The first option is to consider decreasing oxygen consumption. So you may try and control temperature. You may increase sedation. If I haven't paralyzed the child, I would use neuromuscular blockade to decrease blood flow to uh, respiratory muscles. If that failed, um, I would then seriously consider VA ECMO. And so if the lactate's continuing to rise and organ perfusion is poor, um, I believe that rather than struggle to have and have low blood pressure and inadequate DO2, uh, we would opt out for VA ECMO um, in some format. Now, you said something um, I think very interesting and uh, it's easy to perhaps overlook it, uh, but you said at the very beginning it's important to um, make an assessment and then make an intervention and then reassess, and that, that you have to establish that tempo very early on instead of watchful waiting, as you noted. You then said that uh, you'd get a second echocardiogram even after the first one didn't show apparently any overt systolic dysfunction. Uh, but as the case progressed, it's, it's, uh, it, the setup was there wasn't a great deal of systolic dysfunction on the first echo. But then you said you'd get another echo. So that tempo of, because I've had one diagnostic study, doesn't mean that I'm not going to repeat that diagnostic study. Would you repeat the echo in two hours, four hours, if the patient's still hypotensive? I'm not trying to pin you down onto a particular time frame, but rather, how are you thinking about that? If the shock is progressing, we're not winning. 
And so I want to use the right treatment as soon as possible. And just because I've had a test two hours ago that showed me one thing, it doesn't mean it's currently the same now. And we're now entering into refractory septic shock. And for me, that's really an indication for VA ECMO. Now, many centres don't have ECMO and would need other options, but repeating the echo would be helpful in case a pericardial effusion has developed, in case there's severe pulmonary hypertension, which can have other treatments like, as you well know, milrinone as well, or nitric oxide. Now, it takes a brave man to use milrinone in the presence of hypotension, but if you understand the, what's going on, it may be the right treatment. So I have the luxury of having a, a, a good ECMO program and we would opt out now early to uh, use uh, VA ECMO. Other people might not do that for various reasons um, and decreasing VO2 would be a major option but an echo would at least tell you what's going on. There is the hope of a desperate man, steroids, might be considered as a catechol sparer um, and calcium as, as a, another vasoconstrictor might be tried. So there's a range of things you can try if things are going badly. Um, I don't go down that path anymore to four and five inotropes and vasoconstrictors. I prefer to use early VA ECMO. So you touched on this, but um, so in, in this context, want to push a little further, I can imagine colleagues around the world who are wondering what I am, which is, okay, are you going to consider relative adrenal insufficiency and are you going to check a cortisol and does it matter? Are you going to give stress dose steroids because as you've noted, you have refractory distributive shock. So how are you thinking about that? Well, I don't know what the cortisol would mean uh, and it would take me many hours to get that by which time the patient will either be getting better or dead if I don't do anything. So as we know, refractory sh septic shock is at least a 40% mortality. So unless we treat, do something now, um, the child's very likely to die. If not die, they may have a prolonged illness with multi-organ failure and a very poor outcome. So I believe treating the shock aggressively early will help prevent severe multi-organ failure. And that's a philosophical view about doing something, doing something now, and, and then reassessing quickly, and if it's not getting better, to then do something else. So uh, Warwick, uh, I'm sitting here and thinking, as I've been listening to him, he's really going down the guideline pathway of the current guidelines about the approach to shock in a pediatric patient. Are you articulating this treatment pathway because um, you're, of course, carefully following the literature and uh, you accept these guidelines and therefore that's what's fundamentally guiding your, your, your treatment plan? Or is the treatment plan that you just outlined, which again aligns very closely with the current uh, guidelines um, as published by several pediatric societies, um, did this, is this really your evolved experience? And it just so happens to also correlate with the current guidelines on the management of a child in refractory shock. I think my current views were present in the, in the 90s before the guidelines 
uh, were developed in such a systematic way. I think the process behind the development of the guidelines is very robust, but at the end of the day, it's only a consensus opinion. Um, it's based on some evidence, but it's also based on the experience of many. So I, I look at the guidelines and think, well, I'm glad they got it right and followed what we were doing in Melbourne. Warwick, I have to ask, um, you know, the guidelines are the current state of uh, our understanding of the literature, and as you said, it's an expert interpretation of the current state of the literature. And um, all of us who practice in critical care know that we went through nearly a decade from 2000 to 2010 where we seemed to get a signal about relative adrenal insufficiency and testing uh, for uh, cortisol after um, ACTH stimulation tests, um, steroids, et cetera, and then uh, the follow-up studies, negative studies. We seemed to get a signal about tight glycemic control uh, people were very concerned about following that, and then follow-up studies, uh, negative studies, the intervention didn't appear to work, and indeed in that case, appeared to be potentially harmful. Um, and we could go on you know, further with um, even uh, following and targeting mixed venous saturation. And again, there appeared to be a signal that that was an important biomarker and you should target that, and then in follow-up studies, negative studies, the intervention does not appear to change or improve outcomes. So how do we put this together? Um, yours is, interestingly enough, evolved experience that's really got us to the same place where the guidelines are. And yet, you know, what do we do with that next clinical trial that comes out and says, this is a positive intervention, there may be a signal there. How do you weigh whether to adopt that intervention or do you always take a wait-and-see attitude given the history that I just outlined? I think uh, I'd like to believe I practiced evidence-based medicine, but it's how you define it. And uh, I believe evidence-based medicine is three E's. Ex uh, evidence, so what the trials show, experience, and uh, the ethics of what you're doing. So it's very important to do these studies. It's very important to look at the results, but then you have to apply it locally. And the, the study circumstances, so if you mentioned uh, activated protein C, the original study on that excluded all the patients that might get a complication. And so we never adopted that. We adopted a wait and see attitude when it was translated from research into clinical practice. And uh, for example, tight glycemic control, we actually agreed to be part of uh, that study even though we weren't sure that it was a good thing because collaborative research is important, but the results have to be applied under local circumstances. Warwick, you've been uh, taking us through um, uh, the care of this child with evolving uh, distributive shock, refractory to um, your therapy. You're now moving towards ECMO. And of course, the parents are there. And so the question becomes, for someone in, uh, with all of your years of experience, they're now looking you in the eye. And undoubtedly, the first question they're asking is, is my child going to die? And um, you know, I don't doubt that you're going to say, you know, be transparent and truthful. But what I think everyone really wants to know is, how do you actually say this? How much do you say to them? How do you say it? But you and I both know what it's like. You've got a mother and a father, and the most precious thing that they can think of, 
they'd change, exchange their own life for their child's right now. So they're looking you in the eye. What do you say to them? Well, I would look them back in the eye and say their child is critically ill and has a high chance of death and that in order to save their child's life, we need to try harder and that trying harder is to put them on an artificial heart-lung machine. There are some risks, but our history would suggest eight out of 10 children in this situation survive and are normal. And that would be the limit of what I would say. If they had questions, I would answer them briefly. Now, some clinicians say, um, keep the conversation uh, to uh, the facts as you know them. Don't go beyond that so that they're not confused and you don't give them a false sense of um, hope in one way or worry in another something that you can't control, but just keep it very objective. Others would say that um, these parents are looking to you and they need, uh, they need to know that there's some hope and that uh, your obligation is to give them more than just ob objective facts right now, but they're emotionally not leaning on you. Emotionally, everything coming out of your, your being right now is everything they're riding on. So how do you fall on that? Uh, which way do you go? I don't have a fixed answer. I let the parents decide. So I start off with a very brief statement, as I just said, and then allow them to ask questions. So I may not say anything else, or I, may, I will just answer their questions. But the commonest line I might use would be, I wouldn't be doing this if I didn't think I could get, have your child Whatever, by name, I wouldn't be doing this if I didn't think Johnny could recover and be normal. Now, um, are you going to tell them um, upfront at this moment that um, ECMO, if it's going to be successful, should be successful in um, providing uh, support for vital organs for a period of a week or so in time for this infection to reverse itself? But certainly ECMO, if we're still in this situation 30 days from now, uh, the likelihood that ECMO is going to be of benefit to this child is extremely low. Do you have this conversation with the family up front? I mean, right now, in the, as you're introducing the concept of extracorporeal support, as to it's a trial of therapy, and if the therapy's not working after a period of time, we'll be withdrawing the therapy? Or do you delay that, or do you bring that up at all? with the family in the first uh, several days to week? Our experience is that we only need VA ECMO for three to five days in this situation, and that will be enough to reverse the shock process. What we have had happen with some pneumonias is that we've had to convert to VV once the shock is over for severe lung injury. So I wouldn't raise that at this stage. I would wait and see what's going to happen with their particular child. So, uh, Warwick, the patient's now on VA ECMO. It's been cannulated, and I understand in your center, you cannulate centrally. In our center, as you know, uh, we'd more likely cannulate uh, peripherally. Um, nonetheless, um, I'm interested to know, what are you doing now in terms of sedation, analgesia, neuromuscular blockade, 
Um, some might say, of course, the patient needs to be sedated, a nine-month-old who's got central cannulation um, and have analgesia. Um, if so, what are you using? And regarding neuromuscular blockade, if the patient's centrally cannulated, they're going to need neuromuscular blockade. But are you doing anything for rehabilitation? Our view would be that we're using the VA ECMO for shock, and uh, uh, we would be ventilating the lungs to try and limit atelectasis. So if the lung compliance was good, we would actually ventilate to maintain lung volume for an early decannulation. If the lungs were, had sustained serious injury, well, we'd be having a period of lung rest. In terms of sedation and analgesia, like any other patient, they would be getting our standard protocol-guided sedation, which includes a narcotic, um, clonidine or dexmedetomidine, and or um, a benzodiazepine. Uh, back to uh, long rest settings. Um, there's no evidence to guide us on long rest settings on ECMO, but you've got a large ECMO program. Uh, we tend to use uh, a distending pressure. Um, and so uh, it's often empirically chosen, but we'll use an end expiratory pressure of something between 12 and maybe 15 centimeters of water and just sit. Uh, sometimes up to 20 centimeters of water and just sit. Uh, no uh, mechanical ventilation above that. Uh, what do you use for rest settings um, if the patient's compliance is poor and uh, you want to use rest settings while you're on VA ECMO? We'd use a positive end expiratory pressure of about 10 um, and with some man, uh, inflation of perhaps 10 or 15 centimetres of water above the PEEP and depending on the age of the child. So in this child's, this nine-month-old's, uh, we'd probably use a rate of 10. I think the practice around the world is very different and it does depend on the lung uh, itself and how much gas goes in. So if that was giving us a very small tidal volume, we might increase the PEEP slightly and stop the ventilation. Um, if that was giving five to seven mils per kilo uh, tidal volume, we'd probably keep that going. So I think we try and in, we don't have a hard and fast rule. We try and individualize it to the child itself and also to the progress. So for some pneumonia, hypotension, shock situations, you can come off ECMO after three or four days. For others, you have to convert to VV ECMO for a much longer run because of the lung injury. And so our lung rest or uh, ventilation during ECMO would change depending on that situation. Now, earlier in the case, you described that um, you'd be counseling the parents that roughly eight out of 10 children in this context will survive. So for the 20% that don't, um, I could imagine that some of them are related to perhaps uh, cerebral vascular events on VA ECMO. Um, do you, um, in this context, have you had patients who are basically refractory shock developing and evolving multiple organ dysfunction. In that context, you're counseling the parents that ECMO is, is now no longer a benefit? So if there's been a major cerebrovascular event or if there's uh, significant org limb loss, we would be uh, discussing uh, treatment options with the family. Uh, when we use very high flow ECMO, we've found that uh, multi-organ failure is less common than 
uh, other centres. But our central um, cannulation strategy uh, is designed to give uh, 200 or so mils per kilo of flow in the first uh, 6 to 12 hours and then usually around 150 mils per kilo. But that's only achieved because we have cardiac surgeons uh, who are prepared to cannulate centrally in a non-cardiac patient and who are prepared to come back 6 to 12 hours later to clean uh, the chest. So whilst it works for us under our circumstances, it's a very difficult therapy and it, unless you have buy-in from the cardiac surgeons, cardiology, perfusion, and so the whole team is prepared to have that degree of effort and teamwork, it won't work. So some centres who have tried it without cardiac surgeons being prepared to come in repeatedly, and occasionally it's had to be two or three times in the first 36 hours that they have to open the chest and remove the clot and, so, and stop bleeding. Um, it's a very difficult therapy. So Warwick, um, you know, if, fortunately your, your program is a high volume program and uh, you know, it's been studied in the literature uh, for decades now. There's a volume outcome relationship. If you do it a lot, you do it well. And you have some excellent outcomes for patients who are placed on ECMO um, at your program in Melbourne. But as you noted, um, you know, 20% of the patients in this context, a patient goes on with refractory uh, distributive septic shock, uh, is not going to survive their ECMO run. And in some cases, it's because of a devastating uh, cerebral vascular event. And in other cases, it's because of the evolution of multiple organ failure. And ECMO can't reverse that, as we all know. Uh, but of course, we know where the family is. And they've been hoping for this. And there looks like, it looks like there's stability because this heart-lung machine is supporting their child. And they know what it means to stop. So you're at this junction where the therapy's not working. And uh, the only way you can talk to them transparently is to, is to explain to them what this all means and what this moment means. How do you do that? So I think it's not an individual, but uh, it's more of a team effort. So that every day our ECMO nurses will be updating the family so that if things aren't going well, that they will know that. Also, we have a long-term care coordinator who would be involved and would specifically counsel the family each day. So once we've reached five, six, seven days and the situation you've described, uh, the family have a very strong sense that things are not going well and once we'd made a decision, whether it's to stop because of neurological injury or because of devastating multi-organ injury, I would then sit down with the family and say it's time to stop, that we can't continue the treatment. Uh, Warwick, a final word from you. Um, so we've been talking about your approach and your framework after all of your uh, years of experience taking care of a critically ill child. And I'm reminded of a quote that I um, used to have in my office uh, from an intensivist in Canada by the name of Neil Finer. And I never met him, uh, but I heard him say this, uh, a good intensivist is one who is there. And uh, that quote is echoing in my head as you've been talking. Give us uh, your final thoughts. Uh, we have colleagues around the world um, in over 146 countries who are going to be watching this. Uh, 
what's the message for them on how they should be thinking as they're standing there in any resource environment? This is a critically ill child. What should they be thinking? What's their framework? I think they need to do the best they can and they need to act aggressively because we're talking about a disease that is aggressive and so you need to do something, you need to do it now, you need to reassess frequently and keep changing what you're doing until you succeed. If you give up, the patient will die. If you try harder, they may well live. I don't want my patients to die while I'm wondering what I'm going to do. Warwick, uh, thank you for traveling uh, more than halfway around the world to come here as visiting professor. And uh, thank you for sharing all your years of experience with colleagues around the world uh, in this session. Thanks very much for inviting me. It's been an absolute pleasure. And thanks very much for listening. This recording is a production of Open Pediatrics, a free and open access resource for pediatric clinicians worldwide. For more pediatric care materials or to join our global community, please visit our website at openpediatrics.org.